1: This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands
3: of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary: as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode, or contact your local crisis service. Hi, fam, and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. Before we dive into this week's episode with this week's guest, I just wanted to go over a few things and reminders for you as well. Now, just a reminder that there is a listener's choice vote that you can complete for the Australian Podcast Awards. So if you go to the link in the bio or you jump on Instagram or online and type in Australian Podcast Awards, you'll find a link for the listener's choice section. So if you can go in and vote for this podcast, that would be absolutely amazing. Secondly to that, We have a guest on today and myself as well. We are both Polished Man ambassadors and I would like to, I guess, share with you that you have an opportunity to not only contribute financially to Polished Man by donating to either of us or the cause as a whole, but you also can do things like polish up, which is painting a nail blue and really trying to generate and start conversations about things that are really difficult Uh, If you head to the Polished Man website, if you head to their Instagram page, I'll link it below in the show notes as well. Have a read and see if you can get involved. Doing things like painting a nail, reposting things as well, they're so valuable on top of financially contributing. So you don't have to have the money to financially contribute to feel like you're actually contributing to the discussion and the wider purpose. So yeah, please uh, have a read, get involved if you can. Let's see everybody that listens polishing up. It would be absolutely amazing. And if, if you can do that and tag us in that, that would be awesome to see. But enough waffling on from me. I would like to introduce today's guest. You are going to be so excited to hear from this person. So please, without any further ado, let's go. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Reclaim Me. Today, I am joined by somebody who's also coming from Victoria, Anthony Sincotta. Welcome. Welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Would you mind introducing yourself for the listeners?
4: So, My name is Anthony Sincotta, or Chincotta, depends (laughs) depends on how you read it. I'm a professional wrestler based in Melbourne. Um, I go by the stage name or the alias Tommy Hellfire. (laughs) <laughs> um, I also like roasted notoriety on season nine of Married at First Sight, where I was the guy, um, the sensitive guy with the autistic daughter. So that was the story arc that I had. Um, since going off Married at First Sight, and I, since I still do my wrestling and all that sort of stuff, um, I was lucky enough to be invited by a Polish man to be an ambassador. I was actually doing a little bit of, um, work for Polish Man, so like whenever I do like a, a, a video chat or a cameo or a memo or a swish, um, which is the Polish Man version, uh, whenever I do one of those videos, I was already donating the money to Polish Man and they were um, kind enough to reach out to um, to ask me to be an ambassador last year, um, which was very humbling. It was one of the greatest moments um, of my you know faux pas celebrityism um, which is what I call anybody who went on <laughs> maths. You're, you're a faux pas celebrity. But it was good. I um, got to share a little bit of my story last year. Um, and then I did quite a, a little bit of work with them last year. Um, forged a great relationship with Nikki and now um, Kat over at Polish Man. And they invited me back. I got to connect with people like you, um, Harrison, Brandon, um, a few of the other people as well. And it's been, um, yeah, fantastic journey to see everybody, um, involved and especially like somebody like me, like, you know, like a pro wrestler from the BURBS to be able to, um, you know, share my story, but be able to share it in a way that, you know, like I think it brings its own unique sort of viewpoint. Is that like, you know, even though I am now, I'm like six foot four, I'm 115 kilos, and, you know, I can do the fighting on the weekend and all that sort of stuff, that sort of, Bring light to that everybody, you know, has those, you know, everybody has those things in their past and everybody has, you know, not everybody, but, you know, obviously just to sort of dispel the stigma around it. Like you can be Arnold Schwarzenegger and still go through. I'm not saying I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm just saying (laughs) You, you can be, you know, like you can be, you know, like, you know, portray this uber confident masculine figure like I do with the wrestling and still have past you can still you know and still be sensitive to you know what people go through and you know like and your story you know opens up the doors for many other people to say well if he can share then i can share if it can happen to him it can happen to anybody um so that's basically why i was so proud to be part of polish man last year i felt like my um my disastrous run on maths was for a reason (laughs) i felt like it was all for a reason It all came full circle that I was able to use my voice to give back a little bit.
3: And I think what you said there is so important. And it's one of the reasons that I really have tried to make the Reclaim Me platform as intersectional as possible. It's not just getting people of all walks of life, but people with all types of stories. So, You know, whether that be LGBTQIA plus people or people from different cultural backgrounds or people where English is a second language. And that's all the way through to breaking cultural stereotypes around masculinity and men as well, that men can't be victimized because it is so much of the narrative and it's so much of that shame that's a barrier for so many men in seeking help that, you know, they can't have been victimized whether they were children, whether they were you know, at any stage in their life. So I really appreciate what you're doing by speaking out, you know, having the, the outside look that you do and being able to show that masculinity and being a man is also being able to share and open the door for other people.
4: There's nothing more powerful to being able to say you know, what you are, you know, like what – being able to draw that, for me, as a child, you know, like you never have those boundaries. You know, there was no boundaries there, but as a man now and as a father of two, learning how to draw those boundaries, learning how to say, you know, that's not right, that's not good enough, that's not acceptable, that's not what men do, and to be able to just say, you know, like, I don't want that in my life, I don't need that in my life, I don't want that in my life, I need to come to terms, come to terms with my past so my children don't have to live through the same trauma or don't have to live through, you know, and go through the same stigmas that I went through. You know, my daughter doesn't have to have, you know, like, um, see behaviours that become normalised for her when she grows up as an adult. She needs to know that, like, you know, like, what is, what is right and what is wrong. So my son can see, like, somebody who, you know, dad being able to talk and being able to articulate and being able to say what's right and what is wrong and not beat his chest. And you know what I mean? Like just to be a to put out a positive masculine figure towards the, um, towards the world. So I'm, I'm lucky in that position. Um, I feel, you know, like, and even if I do stuff up, I have that accountability. Like my partner can tell me, or I notice myself a lot of times of self-regulation, um, you know, like behaviors learned, um, you know, they say apples don't fall far from trees, which is true. But at the same time, I'm my own apple. I might have fallen from that tree, but I'm my own apple.
3: And I think that's really important as well, like, you know, breaking that cycle of abuse, having accountability, reframing what masculinity means, and often it's vulnerability and, like you said, an ability to have that view internally. But you have kind of mentioned, um, I guess, leading into what your kind of backstory is and your own experiences was about breaking that cycle do you mind telling the listeners a little bit about where you were in your life when this started to happen? I know that, you know, your parents had divorced and it was when they sought, I guess, different partners and pathways that this really kicked off in your life.
4: Yeah. When they sought new partners, I think, you know, I've got to be honest with you. I'm not going to sugarcoat it for them or anybody else because that's part of the accountability of it. Um, you know, my mum my was very upset when my dad left my mum and just sort of like happened to fall into a relationship with another guy who would become my stepdad. Now, he was a fella from England, from like a rough, you know, area of England, um, moving over here. You know, he's a shift worker, drank a lot. And I, I understand, you know, and I'm not making any excuses for the guy or anything like that, but I understand um, you know, at the stress that it is that, you know, all of a sudden he has a pregnant partner who was my mum, and she has three kids to this other guy who just sort of like, you know, like up and left. So there was a lot of stresses there on him. And the way that they used to deal with it, like when they were kids, you know, they put on the boxing gloves and they'd, you know, like at school you'd be forced to fight it out or you go have a drink and you'd, you know, you let it out that way. Now the problem was with us is that I'd never really experienced any of that um at all. Like, you know, um my dad would uh yell and he'd become very large and very big. My dad's a big man, he's like six foot five. So when he'd yell at all be bravado, he'd scream and he'd become big, right? Really big. Whereas um stepdad wasn't as big, but like he would just, you know, like lose it and just launch at you now i can't remember the first time that happened or anything like that um because it was just like a really common thing and for me i always wanted like to have that masculine sort of um role model in my life always wanted a masculine role model always looked up to my dad and i tried to put that on my stepdad as well i wanted his acceptance i always wanted his acceptance you know so i'd make silly jokes to try and make him laugh or I'd, you know, do like, you know, like I think funny things to try and, you know, like win him over. <clears throat> but, you know, I didn't know that that was pushing him away more, you know, like to him, it just wasn't funny. It just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't on the cards and it would just push him further and further away. But I'd keep chasing, you know, like almost like a needy kid. Um, So, you know, like there was times he'd, you know, launch himself across the kitchen table and, you know, like physically choke me in front of my whole family. Um, we had the garden hose where, and I, you know, there's other times, you know, you get kicked and you get beaten and all that sort of stuff, but there was a, a garden hose, you know, and I, and I thought to try and, you know, win his approval to show him that I was a man. He'd send you to your room and he'd make you wait there until he'd come in with a garden hose to whip you with the garden hose and. And it was like one of those things, You're just sitting in the room, just, you know, rocking back and forth, like, holy God, you know, like, what's going to happen, what's going to happen? And I think that was that was just as scary as the actual whip, is that you're sitting there and you're waiting for it, you know, like when you're a kid in your room and there's no escapers, because we didn't really have bugger all, you know, like most kids have posters on the walls, we didn't have any of that. Um, you're sitting there, and I remember once he um, came into the room. Sorry if I get a little bit shaky when I recount this stuff. But he came into the room with um, a cut-off bit of garden hose like that. And, you know, for anybody who knows, that that hurts. That really, really hurts. Um, And to prove that I was a man to him, I put my hand out for him to whip me. And he hit me so hard, but I did not flinch. I didn't move a muscle. I didn't move an inch. I just he hit me and I could just see this like red mark straight across my hand and see like welting up and all that stuff. And i just like looked him dead in the eye and I've gone like, like, you know, like tough, tough guy. Like, is that it? And he walked out of the room and then I just dropped to the ground as soon as he left the room. Like, you know, I can't. I showed him I'm a man and I dropped to the ground and I just cry. I would go to school, um, covered in bruises and I would cover myself up you know, or I'd play sport that would, you know, get you more bruises. So like, you know, like nobody could really notice the bruises that you had. Um, I went to bed until I was like 14 years old because I was just so miserable. I'd go to school and I'd act out because at home could not act out, but like it was just everything was just like constantly for me, like looking for an escape. Like I was always looking for escapisms um, and then like, you know, my dad didn't get it much better either. So, like, you know, I'd always say to my dad, oh, look, my stepdad hit me, or my stepdad did this, or my stepdad did that. And I'd tell him. And because, you know, my stepdad wasn't that big a guy, and my dad was, you know, like six foot five, and, you know, big dude, I could tell my dad, and my dad would take care of it. Except I'd tell my dad, and my dad would laugh about it. He goes, Oh, ho, what I should do is I should send your uncle over because your uncle was so tough on the footy field, blah 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 and he'd tell this other big story and we'd all be laughing by the end of this story, but then I'd always just kind of sit there like thinking, That doesn't solve anything for me. Like, why won't you stand up for me? Why won't you do something about this? Like why why won't you? Um so but then again we would have my stepdad on this side, and then my dad married my stepmother on the other side, and she was a bit of a bit of a lost soul, you know. Like I got, I she was wonderful, but she was also had a drinking. So like we go from our dad's place, or we go from our mum's place, where like you know it was always a threat of violence across to my dad's house with the stepmom who had the drinking problem, and my dad couldn't cope with this and they'd always be arguing and screaming. I turned forty last um couple of weeks ago. And I remember on my dad's fortieth, so this is the sort of stuff that we'd always put up with, or we'd not put up with, we just it happened to my dad, but like to us it, it you know, we were the ones who whip with it. We went home to my dad's house on his fortieth birthday. And we're all excited to spend, you know, the night with dad on his fortieth birthday. We're gonna have pizza and we're gonna watch the footy. And my stepmom changed the locks on the door. So there was my dad and three, you know, two of my brothers, so three of us on my dad's doorstep on his birthday and the locks on the house had been changed. And like, you know, it's not my burden. That wasn't my burden to wear, obviously, but like you take it as, you know, your burden. Like, you know, like, holy crap, you know, we just left our mom's place where all this stuff is happening. And we come over here and there's no reprieve. There's no, there's no let up. There's no, like, where do we, where do we go? Like, how do we, you know, like what, when do we get a break from this? So, you know, it was always, it was always like one of those um situations where I never really had, um I never really had any outlets, um, you know, like healthy sort of outlets, you know, it always like. I would get out and leave the house on the weekend, you know, on a Saturday or a Sunday and I just wouldn't come back until dinner time or something like that um, because that was escapism. So then, you know, like everything becomes like, you know, like you seek escapisms in everything later in life. You know, you seek escapisms in alcohol, drugs, um, relationships. Everything becomes escapism because you didn't learn a healthy way when you were a kid. So all of a sudden, you know, everything you get stuck with a zero to one hundred um, mind frame or mindset, and that's just the that's just the way life is. Um, so, you know, and I, I get a little bit rattled when I talk about it, but at the same time, you know, like um, when I was younger, I never really spoke about it until I was like a you know a teenager, and then I have like you know my first proper relationship, and I'm sitting there like watching. Um, you know, like one of my girlfriends when I was a teenager with her family. And I remember just think like hating her because she had this perfect family and I couldn't understand like why I didn't have that perfect family and it would drive a wedge and I would just be an absolute dickhead. Like, you know, you don't, you don't fucking know what it's like. You don't know what the fucking, blah, blah, blah. blah. And that's not their burden to pay, but that's, that's just like. When you're a kid, you don't know. All you want to do is point fingers and blame, you know, like I had it terrible because of or blah, blah, blah. And, you know, obviously, you know, I didn't prepare a list (laughs) or anything of stuff that happened or anything like when I was a kid. But, yeah, at the age of about 16, I think I was 16 or 17, I was living out of home um, because I couldn't live with my mum. And my dad had another partner after that and I couldn't live there either because anytime anybody get close to me I'd chase them away. Um I would be coming home I was a you know I moved out of my mum's house and into my dad's house would have been about fourteen and then I used to come home like just about every weekend I would be drunk, I would be high, I would be causing like, you know, like vandal vandalizing shopping centres and you know, just generally, you know, just doing really, really dumb shit. And you know, as a fourteen-year-old, it's probably you know, it's not the best look, but um, doing really, really, really bad shit. And and I suppose that was the way of you know me showing the world, you know, like how tough I am, you know, and how cool I am, and how you know, like nothing bothers me because you know, look at Anthony, he's crazy. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things, you know, like even today. um, I was walking up the street with my partner and um, we were walking the dog and there was um, a broken glass on the ground, like a broken beer bottle on the ground. And it reminded me of this time when I was 14, I was down at, I think, like Knox City Shopping Center, which is out in East Melbourne, like outer East Melbourne. And I remember I was, yeah, I was about 14. I threw a beer bottle in the air and it smashed on the ground. And I was like, yeah, cool, whatever. And some guy yelled at me going like, what the bloody hell are you doing, mate? that shit gets stuck in dog's paws. I remember being a kid just like, yeah, whatever, man, piss off. Yeah, I'm cool. And ever since then, <laughs> every time I see a broken glass on the floor, I just like hang my head on the ground going, oh, Jesus, what a tool.
3: so <laughs> embarrassing.
4: The- yeah, it's embarrassing, isn't it? I told that to my yeah. partner today and she just kind of <laughs> laughed at me and I'm like, hey, don't laugh. It's serious. I'm
3: It's embarrassing to look back on it through the eyes of somebody that's much older and more mature and has gone through a lot of their own work. But it's also, you know, I think it's a natural part of life to test the boundaries at some points. And, you know, I was sexually assaulted when I was 14 and it was immediately after that that I was doing the same things. I was stealing, I was taking drugs, I was stealing drinks, I was like, I was an absolute menace and not many people knew how to deal with me or what to do because they knew what I'd gone through. But I think in your situation as well, you've, you've had this, you know, walking on eggshells for years and years and years. And like, how do you learn to self-regulate? How do you learn to acknowledge or anything when you're trying to manage everybody else's reactions around you to keep yourself safe? And I think like hearing your story just makes me, You know, so happy to hear that you've done that work and that you're in a place where you can talk to this because, you know, there are so many kids that have gone through stuff like that and that don't acknowledge it as a traumatic upbringing and, you know, think that they just acted out just because or something. And I I don't know, I just, I feel really, I don't know you very well, but I feel really proud that you're. Speaking about this like that, because I just have so much empathy for that little kid that had no escape of safety and no safe haven and no one to talk to that would take them seriously. Like even your dad deflecting away instead of helping you, that's just another person to fail you in your circle.
4: And that was a big, um, that was a big thing for me. Um, it was actually my dad. Um, now I haven't spoken to my dad in about five years or so now. Um, and there's no, you know, ill will. It's pretty much, you know, like, you no, know, you saw me in a certain way in life and that doesn't work for me. And in wrestling, we always say like, if you're on a wrestling show and you're, you know, and your ceiling is here, but you want to be up here, but they only see you here. There's a thing that's like, that's okay. Go somewhere else and show them what you're made of. You know what I mean? Like get rid of that anchor, get rid of the thing. So I don't know where to start with this. Like with my dad, it was, it was a lot of bravado, like always bravado. Like, you know, oh, I made this amount of money. I did this. I did that. I did this. I did that. And so a lot of my life was mirroring that, you know, like bravado, you know, like false bravado, you know, like, oh yeah. Well, you know, I get in a relationship with a girl and I brag about other girls that I've been with, you know, like that's sort of like really insecure shit, <laughs> like really insecure shit. And I can I can admit that you know it's totally that's exactly what it was, um, but my dad would always be bragging about things, and he'd always but And one of the things he always bragged about was that he never he never had to ask a girl out in his life, and that was one of the things he always sort of bragged to me about. But then, like, I just sort of started to realise it's like he'd never actually broken up with a girl either in his life. Like all these women, he'd always have like an an out, and with my stepmom he was miserable in this relationship because he couldn't deal with her alcoholism. So he put her in a position where, and he'd always say to us when we were kids, if you make me pick between you and her, I'll pick her because you should never make me choose. But if she ever makes me pick her or you, I'll pick you because she could never make me choose. So anyway, in this relationship, he basically forced her in a position where she had to make that, where she made that, put that ultimatum to him. And he was like, Gone. Out. All right. She made that she made that ultimatum. It wasn't my decision. It was her decision. I'm out. And then we had to live with that. All of a sudden it was our fault that, you know, like she made that ultimatum and he left her for us and all that sort of stuff. So to me, there was like I would start to I'd take that on, right? I would take all that on. Um him not helping me with my stepfather, I took that on. Uh remember once um, you know, we we're lifting a you know, a, um, I can't remember what it was. It was like a dryer or a dishwasher up the side of the house and I didn't have the strength to hold it and I dropped it and, oh God, look at you crying, you're weak as piss. All this sort of, all these sorts of things that would always be happening, right? And I, um, always take that on board, right? To me, it's like, I'll, I'll tell an analogy soon, but like all these things, I always go to my dad, help me, blah, 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 whatever, never do it. Um... But then, um, sorry, I get a little bit shaky with this, but there was, so so as I'm saying, it's like, my dad would always portray the image of a big, tough person. Right. And I was always that little elephant, you know, that little thing, like, you know, like, tripping around him, you know, like with his approval, you know, like buying everything that he's selling me. Like he's telling me he's wonderful. I'm believing him. He's telling me he's all these great things. I'm just believing him and I'm never questioning him. And it just started getting to the point where I was like, I was seeing cracks, you know, like I was seeing like, you know, if you are so wonderful, you know, why, why this? Anyway, my daughter was doing some homework, school, schoolwork with my dad and my daughter was crying. And I remember, and to me, kids cry. I was like, okay, kids are crying. That's fine. That's fine. That's okay. Okay. They're just working through it. You know, like she she needs to be in a position where she's a little bit uncomfortable. I'm okay with a little bit of crying. And then all of a sudden she wasn't crying. And this was in the family room uh, near the kitchen. And I've walked in. I'm going, okay, she's not crying, but nobody's saying anything. So I walked over, took a look around, and I saw my dad was showing my daughter a video of her crying. He took a video of her crying and he said to my daughter, that's what you look like when you cry. And I was sitting there, like, in shock, like, in absolute shock, like, like, literally shaking. And I don't know if you've ever seen the cartoon Lambert, the sheepish lion.
3: No.
4: No. So Lambert was a lion that was delivered to a flock of sheep by accident. And his whole life, he wanted to fit in with the sheep. And... The sheep rejected him because he couldn't butt heads with them or he couldn't do this with them and the sheep were just rejecting. All the while, Lambert doesn't know that Lambert is a lion. So, on my whole life, I'd been like a lion that was forced to try and keep up with sheep. Now, in the Lambert the sheepish lion movie, a wolf comes for Lambert's mum and all the other sheep run away and it's up to Lambert to discover his inner lion to save this his mother sheep. And when he discovers he's raw, the wolf runs away, petrified, never going to come back. So anyway, I um, told my daughter, I need you to get up and go, just go to your room. You've done enough schoolwork for today. Just go to your room and just, it's okay. Off you go. And my dad started yelling at me. And I was like, and I said to him, you need to leave this alone. You need to leave this alone. And my dad doesn't realize that Lambert, the sheepish one <laughs> inside me, is coming to life. Like you can push me around, you can pop fob me off, you can call me whatever you want to, but don't, don't do that to my children.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with quins.
4: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Because I lived through it, they're not going to live through it. So I said to my daughter, go to your room. Just go to your room and just play. And my dad kept yelling at me and I was telling him like, you you want to leave this alone. If you know what's good for you, you just want to leave this alone. Anyway, he went down the stairs um, to get in his car to go. And he kept yelling, and it got to a certain point. I just flew down the stairs. I flew down the stairs. I had veins coming out of my head. I was seething angry. I didn't touch him or anything like that, but I had him up against the wall, and I just yelled at him. All of a sudden, this 11-year-old kid had just realized that he was a man who wasn't going to be walked on. And I yelled at my dad about what he had done to my daughter. And then I yelled at my dad about what I'd gone been through. And I yelled at my dad about, hey, I know what you were doing. I know you're deflecting. I think you're a coward. This is what I had to live through. I'm not going to put up with that with my daughter. And I got so angry and I was yelling at him, I had the spit flying out of my mouth. You can even see I'm still I'm shaking talking about it now. And then my dad, like the lion who heard, or like the wolf that heard the lion roar. Burst out crying and ran out of the house and didn't come back for a few days. Now, it didn't make me feel good that I yelled at my dad. I didn't you know, I didn't walk away beating my chest or anything like that. You can see clearly now I still shake a little bit when I talk about it. But I didn't walk away beating my chest. But I walked away and I kind of pitied him. Like, there was a lot of pity there. There was a lot of, this is the guy who made me feel, you know, like a wuss. Or, you know, that kid who cried like a little girl or that kid who couldn't stand up for himself or, you know, that kid who let everybody walk over him. And all of a sudden, here I am. And all of a sudden, here he is. I kind of, I I was let down. I was really let down. I was like, this is the person whose love and admiration I've been searching for my whole life. I don't know. Essentially, I don't know what I was looking for. But when I saw that, it was kind of like, um, like I popped the bubble of his bravado type of thing. And I showed, I showed what kind of a person he really was when it came to conflict. And for me, the best way to deal with conflict is not in an aggressive way, but it's like head on. You have those conversations, you have those rough, hard conversations. And he'd have avoided it his whole life with me. At the time I actually got him there and, you know, told him that I'm not going to put up with it. And, I'm definitely not going to put up with that with my kids. It was too much and uh, he left the room. And for me, it was one of those, um, it was a liberation moment because I realized that maybe I was a lion and maybe everybody else was a sheep. Maybe I was trying too hard to fit in or maybe um, whatever, but it was a very powerful moment for me. Um, you know, it was, yeah, it was um, it was what it was, you know. Um, I became a different person that day, and me and my dad, we spoke a few other times after that, but we're never really the same again. And it, we, we live in a day and age, you know, where it's so, um, we're male role models, you know, like all role models in your life. They come and go. And if something's, you know, like, Not going to be the ex, you know, not going to live up to the expectation that you're hoping for or sort of always bring you down to a certain level when you want to be somewhere else. You know, it's, you know, as hard and as difficult as it is, sometimes it's better off to move on and move forward and learn from it. And I've always been a huge advocate for that. You know, like, was I happy that we had that argument? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes and no. Because I felt like I needed to discover my role.
3: It's a great analogy in the way that you talk about it. It's really insightful. Because as well, like, this is a man who, like you said, is a big guy. And while you're a child and you're seeking that adulation that you're not getting, you know, you're Mm. you're looking up to adults around you who are not caring for you or giving you the love and care that you need. So you're trying to, like, impress them, which is not fair on you to feel like you're not enough just being yourself. Mm. And then, you know, seeing your children, you know, being treated in a way, do you feel like that maybe gave you clarity to see or like a validation of some kind to be like what I went through was bad or did it make you see it in the light of day of what it was and that the way that he was treating you, your life, and now possibly to your child? Was there a clarity there or do you think it was like the, the straw that broke the camel's back?
4: I don't know if you notice this, but I always notice this. If if there's something about somebody that I don't like, it's usually a reflection of myself. <laughs> I think, my God, that person is so obnoxious. And then I think about all the times that I've been obnoxious. Oh, my God, that person was so rude and dismissive. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for me – um. It was one of those moments of like that person I thought was really cowardly and really, you know, and all the, that, all that false bravado, all that, you know, like chest beating and everything like that, you know, cause I'm wrong, you know, like my, my stepdad is not a big guy, not, not a tall dude, not a, he's a burly dude, but he's not a big guy, right? But when I'm, when I was a kid, he was a giant, right? And my dad was even bigger. My dad was like, you know, six foot five. You know, so, um, so for me, it was that accountability. Like I don't want to be that person that I grew up with. I don't ever want to have anybody say that's just what your father would have done or anybody that says that's what you sound like this person or you sound like that person, because that person wasn't a good person for me. That person wasn't the role model that I needed. And if I did that, and my, my dad used to always say, like, oh, you think you got it bad? When I was a kid, I'd get this. And, and to tell you the honest truth, I would have taken what he had as a kid any day of the week. But the problem was, I was watching him. He learned nothing from what he went through as a child, aside from that bravado. You know, you think you've got it this. And for the longest time, that was me. You think you've got it bad. You think you've got this. You've got that. I didn't want to be in that cycle anymore. I didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to be the guy who, as I said, I turned 40 the other week. I didn't want to be that guy sitting around, you know, in his 40s, you know, drinking every night because he couldn't come to terms with, you know, his family or his childhood. That wasn't for me. I watched people in my life growing up drinking themselves stupid. Stepdad, my stepmom, you know, (laughs) I watched these people and I watched what they did to other people. And I, I didn't want that. If you meet me, you know, she you said, you, you don't really know me, but like there is like, you know, there is an air of, you know, masculine confidence about me. You know, I can't deny that. But at the same time, I try to be like a healthy masculine confident. I try to be accountable. I try to articulate how I'm feeling, you know, especially, especially as a man in today's um, society, you know, like how do you, how do you navigate, you know, like, your issues and all that sort of stuff, because, you know, especially being a man, I don't want to be like another, another one of those guys, you know what I mean? I want to, and I don't want, I don't want that for my kids. You know, I want them to be proud. I want them to be proud of me. I want them to be, you know, confident that I always have their back. And I want to pass that on to my children that, you know, my daughter, if she ever has kids. She has that proud confidence about her that she will always be there for them. And my son, that he has that proud confidence, you know, and he got that from a strong masculine figure. To get to that point, you have to go through quite a lot of, you know, winding roads. Nobody just, you know, comes out of that and, you know, some people do. They're the exceptional type. (laughs) They're the exceptional people. I tip my hat to them. But for me, it was like years of, you know, like bad relationships and bad decisions and all that sort of stuff, you know, like where you fall into a relationship with somebody else who's suffering from their own trauma and it's like, oh, we'll fix each other. And then you become accountable for theirs, but they become accountable, for, you know, and it becomes this messy sort of a roller coaster. And then next thing you know, you're in a, you find yourself in the same relationships that your step parents and your parents were in, like, you know, like horrible relationships where it's just always egg, you know, you're walking on eggshells, they're walking on eggshells. You cross this line together and it just becomes normal. Where as a kid, you grow up and there's arguing in the house every day. And then as an adult, We're in relationships where it's just arguing every day. And I remember saying to my dad once, I had this, I walked up to him and I was like, I learned something. I I was speaking to a counselor. Um, I'm a huge advocate for counseling. So I was speaking to my counselor and I can't remember exactly what the message was, but it was like, you know, you're not accountable for other people's bullshit. You're only accountable to yourself or whatever. And I said this to my dad after a counseling session one day. I was like, oh yeah, you know, I had this thought and I said it out loud and he goes to me, oh yeah. How much did that thought cost you? And I just remember just thinking like, what a what a bullshit thing to say to somebody, you know, like what a cowardly thing to say to somebody, you know, somebody's down, somebody's trying to pull themselves up and your response is to push them back down again. Why, you know, and there's that bravado again, you know, so (laughs) I don't, yeah, why would I, why would I want to do that? And then it was the same thing, like, with the relationships. You're on this roller coaster, you're roller coaster. And I think um, one of my partners, um, you know, and, that, you know, there's nothing, you know, against them. And I'll never speak bad about any of my ex-partners. That we're all on our own journey. Um, one of them said to me, you know, I, I would, you know, fight for this relationship forever. And I was just like, well, when do we stop fighting and when do we start living? When does this become life? You know, like, and it wasn't the life that I wanted. You know, then then again, you know, my dad always bragged to me about, you know, I'd never, you know, asked a girl out and he'd never think. It was hard. I looked her in the eye and I told told him I didn't want to be in the relationship anymore. And that was also like a liberation for me too. Like, I can do this. I can make hard decisions. I can, my path isn't set by my dad's mistakes. My path isn't set by that. I'm not going to blame this on anybody else. I... Made that decision and I walked through that door. I made a tough call, and it was hard, but it was the right call, you know. And then, you know, waiting for you know somebody to claim me, I saw the you know the partner I wanted, um, my partner, and I chased after her. <laughs> you know, like, I put myself out there. I was like, no, I'm, not, I'm tired of these, you know, these patterns, this person, this you know, like this life, you know, like. I want a good life and I want to, you know, and I want to, I want the partner that I want, not the one that chooses me. And I took that step and I made that decision. And, you know, now I'm this beautiful home. I've got a beautiful son and my daughter has a beautiful companion. So, you know, it's, um, and it's all from like making those tough decisions. I'll I'll give you another analogy that I really like. I heard this one when I was a kid and like, at the Sheepish Wine, which I watched when I was a kid. There's this um, circus in town. This was the analogy, um, the story that was told to me by somebody who I really look up to. Um, his name's Joe Zolo. He's a youth worker. Um, he's like a sage. He's like a sage for like you know hard men because he's been there and done it. There's this um, the circuses in town, right? And you know the circus has all those trucks. So all those trucks are packed up. All those trucks are all good to go, but it's been raining overnight. So these trucks are trying to get out of the out of this lot with the circus. And this kid's walking there and this kid's watching and he's watching these trucks trying to get out and these trucks can't get out. So the conductor goes over and there's an elephant and there's this giant elephant and he's got his leg, got a little chain around his leg that's on this little stump in the ground, just a tiny little stump in the ground. The conductor takes the pin out of the chain and this giant elephant walks away from this tiny little stump, walks over to the uh, trucks, puts his tusks underneath the tru- underneath the back of the truck, and pushes this truck out of the mud like it was nothing, just picks it up, pushes his truck out, pushes the next truck out, pushes all the trucks out. And then this giant elephant walks back over to his stump in the ground and they put the pin on a the- pin in the thing. And the little kid, you know, is trying to think, he's like trying to put this together. And he says to the um, conductor, he goes, excuse me, mister, how come that elephant can push those trucks out of the ground, but he can't pull that stump out of the ground? And the conductor tells him, "Because well, when the kid is, when the elephant is young, they chain him to that little stump. But when he's a little, he can't move that stump. He runs this way, he runs that way, he runs this way, he runs that way. But that little stump won't come out of the ground because the elephant's only little. And what they did is they conditioned the elephant. Even though if the elephant just took one step, he would rip that stump out of the ground now." is conditioned to think that he'll never get that stump out of the ground. So whenever the elephant gets chained to that stump, he doesn't fight it. He just goes with it. And I find that was like a metaphor for so many times in my life where, you know, like you've got the people who still have that mental power over you. You know, like if you said um, my stepdad's name, I'd still freak out like, oh, my God, you know what I mean? It would do things to me. You know, as the kids say nowadays, it would trigger me. If you mention my stepmom or my dad's uh, girlfriend or something like that, it would trigger me. So um, that's because it was still there's that stump in the ground that I'm still attached to. But like, I love a good analogy. because analogies are what we draw on, or what I personally draw on, because they paint a picture in words that you know, where we don't have to sit there and list out all of what happened to us. We're able to like sum it up and like, hey, it's this story, and in this story, I'm the elephant that stump is what I'm hanging on to, you know, or that, hey, I'm a lion and I'm hanging out with sheep, but as soon as I discover my raw, those sheep are going to respect me.
3: And I think that that analogy about the elephant is really powerful as well because it's like quite emotional actually, but it's so powerful Mm. because I think it makes you see that that's not the elephant's fault and that the elephant is – dealing with all of the things that it's been dealt with and that it's been trained to do that from a little baby. And I think when you think about trying to break the cycle of abuse, it is really hard to be that elephant that breaks it. And I think it is incredibly powerful. And you did mention before that you've been uh, to counselling before. Mm -hmm. What was it like, I guess, for you to go from a place where you were in – you know, unhealthy relationships and, you know, being quite destructive and and pushing the boundaries a little bit to being in a position now where you can reflect back and and see how far you've come.
4: Journey with the counsellor was hard for me because I would tell them a little bit of the story, but I wouldn't tell them the whole story um, because there were still behaviours that I was doing that I didn't want to admit to. You know, I was still... Running around, um, with women when I shouldn't have been running around with women. Um, I was still doing a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs, um, when I shouldn't have been doing any of these things. But so when I was there with the council, I'd be talking about, you know, like frivolous shit. You know, like, oh, this guy at work bothers me and I'm like, oh, why does this guy bother you? Oh, cause he's a dick. And it's really like, Hey, I'm a womanizing drug binging, <laughs> you know, borderline alcoholic. So I never, um, so for me, it was, wasn't until, no, after a while of counseling where I could actually open up and say, Hey, this is, this is what's going on with me. This is what, this is why, you know, this is why counseling isn't working for me because I'm not being honest. I'm not putting all my cards on the table. I'm being a coward. I'm essentially going there. Um, just to say that I go there, um, you know, because then, you know, that'll get people off my back when really I wasn't wasn't painting the full picture. I wasn't painting the full story. Eventually, you know, like, you have to come to terms with this stuff and you have to, you know, admit to your faults and you'd have to, you know, admit to your um, shortcomings and all that sort of stuff. And you have to be a man, essentially, or, you know, be a grown-up. You know, I, I say be a man because, you know, like, you grow up, you know, it's always, you know, like be a man or better way to say it, it's like, grow up. You have to grow up. You have to come to that point where you got to grow up. So, you know, like my counselors would make me write letters to people in my life, you know, who, whom had wronged me and people in my life who had done all these things for me, or I perceived them to do, you know, bad things by me. And the more that, you know, like I was starting to think about this, you know, the more, empathy I was having for people who had to put up with me who weren't those people, you know, like ex-partners, friends, um, you know, siblings, you know, like my behavior, how that would affect them, you know, but, um, I sent you a post, um, which I did for a Polish man last year and in it, I drew another analogy, um, where I was sitting there and we're talking about my stepdad. And as I said, you know, you're getting, um, triggered, and I was literally shaking, like, when they're talking about them. I was, like, getting angry, and I was, like, shaking. I was getting defensive. Somebody's, like, putting you on the spot, and I'm getting defensive, and I'm getting really, like, oh, oh what? Well, you know, like, well, you know, like, oh, he should be upset. He should be mad. He should be saying sorry to me. You know, he should be doing all these things. You know, he should be kissing my ass to, you know, like, make it up to me. And this counsel said to me, she goes, um, well, what if he doesn't? And I was you know, like taken back. Like I was, I was literally um the first feeling I had when she said that I was offended. I was like, why shouldn't he, why shouldn't he, why shouldn't he apologize to me? Why should he, he goes, oh, no. she said, I'm not questioning whether he should or whether he shouldn't. I'm just saying like, what if he, when he goes to bed at night, he's not thinking about you the way that you're thinking about him. And obviously we finished that session and I was still feeling really, really defensive, like really, You know, like, you're just trying to make an excuse for him. You're just trying to, you know, this was the most, um, this was the most, uh, the greatest bit of advice I'd ever gotten. And it it just changed. It changed my life. It didn't happen overnight, but I, I came, I came to terms with what she said to me and the power it eventually gave me. What if that person isn't thinking about you the same way that you're thinking about them? What if this person that did all these horrible things to you, when you're a kid, goes to bed at night, closes his eyes, and just goes to sleep like nothing happened, right? I know I painted it in a, pretty, <laughs> in a pretty bleak picture there, but like, what What if, what if, what, what, what am I going to do? The only person who it's affecting now is me. The only person that's destroying, you know, whose life it's affecting is me. The only person whose relationships are getting affected by it is me. The only person whose kids are suffering because of it are mine. Why Why would that, why would I, I need to come to terms with this. I need to take all that stuff that he, or you know, that happened to me as a kid, I need to take it out of their hands and I need to put it in my own hands. So that's what happened. But now it's my story to tell. Now it's my story of growth. It's my story of acceptance, and it's my story, you know, like how I shaped myself for the future. It's not their story anymore. It's my story. What if they're not thinking about me the way that I'm thinking about them? And that's, if you've seen the movie The Labyrinth, right at the end of the movie, she has that, she can't remember the line. So the guy's making her jump through this labyrinth, making her jump through all these hoops and all these hoopla's and all this sort of stuff, and he's saying he's doing it for her, when really he's just sort of putting her through hell. And when she finally looks in the eye at the end of the movie, she remembers the line of the book that she can't remember. She looks at um, the Goblin King in the eye and she says, you have no power over me. He disappears. He just up and vanishes and her life goes back to normal. So for me, it was like that whole, even though I didn't get to, you know, say to them in the (laughs) face-to-face, it was like, it was an internal thing for me. It's like, hey, that person has no power over me anymore. Yeah. I don't see them. I don't have to deal with them. I learned quite a lot from them. I learned a huge amount um, in my life. I don't wish it. I don't wish them well. I don't wish them bad. I don't wish them anything. I don't have to forgive them. I don't have to do anything like that. I've got to forgive myself for hanging on to it for so long and to, you know, what I did in my life to set myself back as so far as I did, and I have to be okay with that. But the same time like you know like you're never too late to discover something you're never too late to you know like come to terms with something and I was like well into my like mid to late 30s (laughs) when um when I had that realization and it was you know it was one of those things um I yeah it was just gone.
3: So powerful and it's given yourself back the power it's taking back that power to know that you have the ability to forge your own path forward. And it sounds like, you know, from everything that you've said that that's where you've landed. You've taken control and you've worked really hard and you've chosen a partner and you've, you know, become this person that you know that your children would be proud of to look at you as. And I think that's just an an amazingly powerful place to be in and it's a it's a really great honor to have you on to speak so candidly and to to talk to your experiences so openly because i know that so many men specifically are going to hear this and change the way that they see what they've gone through whether they'll speak about it to a friend or anyone or a therapist or something like that like i think i think what you're doing is is really powerful and the the honesty that you bring to it to say that you weren't always perfect as well paints a picture that anybody listening has the opportunity to change something in their life that they're not hundred percent happy with.
4: Okay, I thinking, um, to me, I'm a massive, massive advocate um, of that, because if you keep it in, you know, like it's like a kettle, you know, it's going to boil over. You need to release those valves every now and then you need to do it in a healthy way. And the healthiest way is to talk about it. And to have those open and honest conversations, you know, even now with um my partner, like, I'm usually the one that avoids the, you know, the, the hard conversations. But with my partner now, I feel comfortable enough and I feel confident enough. And, you know, like, and I trust her that, like, if we ever have issues or, and you know, because relationships, you know, like, we never had, like, anything bad or, you know, blowouts or anything like that. But, like, because we don't let it get there because I've got that trust in my partner that I can say, hey, I'm feeling this way, and I know there's going to be empathy back. And if she ever says to me, hey, I'm feeling that way, well, then, you know, as confronting as, you know, that can be for some people, you need to empathize. You need to be able to, you know, take that trust, you know. And that's something that, you you know, that I had to learn over the years, that emotional trust, you know. I don't have to beat my chest to make my point. Absolutely. yeah, you can hear it open, honestly, and that was something that I wish I saw as a kid. But now that you know, I am who I am, I get to experience it, and I tell you, life is so much easier.
3: Powerful statement, as well. Like, yeah, you don't have to beat your chest to make a point. That is so. Yeah, I really yeah. like that. I'm going to make that into a quote. <laughs> you put enjoy. it on a little canva thing. I just yeah, love it. Yeah, I like it's, it. It's it's it. It paints a really great picture. Um Yeah. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing your story for being a Polished Man Ambassador, for opening this discussion, for talking so candidly about things like counselling and therapy and stuff like that as well. I think it's really powerful. Anthony Cincotta or Chinkotta. Thank you so much. Was it that right?
4: Yeah, no, Anthony Anthony's right, Cinco or chincotto, as I said, you know, tomato, tomato, where you <laughs> from. I answer to both. <laughs>
3: I was like, did I miss a syllable? or no. But
4: no. <laughs> Anthony, Cinco, Cinco. <laughs> yeah, you got to call me use, an, Antonio.
3: <laughs> I didn't use the hands. That was the problem. Cinco,
4: you know, Cinco. You know, the funny thing is, is like, everybody, they always say, because I'm only, like, a quarter Italian. They always say, like, you know, like, but, but you're Italian, right? And I always say, no, only when it suits me. I went I went to Italy last year and everybody come walking up to me and everybody's just talking like Italian to me and I'm just standing there going like, yeah. <laughs> I, care. I speak a little bit of German <laughs> I speak I speak Australian Italian. So that's where you just talk really loud but with your hand. You know, like, oh what are you talking about? Oh this is oh.
3: <laughs> It just reminds me of that scene from Inglorious Bastards where Brad Pitt goes Bongiorno.
4: Buongiorno. Yeah, and the dude's just standing there like that. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Brad don't speak Italian. Yeah. Fourth best.
3: <laughs> that, that is so funny. Um it's best. been it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. And yeah, as I said, you are always welcome back. Um and thank you again for all you do. And for anybody listening, there'll be links in the show notes of this episode Uh, should you want to connect with Anthony, should you want to donate towards the Polished Man uh, campaign that is happening uh, during October. And as well, if you want to, just polish up. If you don't have the funds, that's completely okay. I always say that the best way is the free way as well. Repost on your socials, paint a nail blue, um, and start having some hard-hitting
4: conversations. Absolutely. That's all it takes. You, don't, you can even use a though if you want. It's, you know, just put the awareness out there, you know, have those conversations and, you know, be a polished man. Yes,
3: I love it. Thank you so much for joining us and thank you all for listening to Reclaim Me. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on. This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you
1: again. Bye.